thank you very much for coming to talk POPSI and to being the resident philosopher. For the record, I'm Dina Schottenkirk. This is my project. And you were the kind Johannes Brandl, who is my resident philosopher and helped us out here in Salzburg. Well, it's such a pleasure for me to sit here with you and to have this conversation. The general topic you gave for this whole series of, in, of, of interviews is art as cognition. Uh, in another way, I think you put it in uh, one place I've seen is art is epistemology. Okay, so I've started thinking about the construction of this sentence. What exactly uh, would it mean to say art is epistemology? So it depends, of course, how you define epistemology. But so here is one way I can interpret this sentence and then you can say uh, how you understand it. What's the difference? So if I define epistemology as the study of gaining knowledge, so it's a philosophical discipline that studies methods or ways of gain, gaining knowledge, then I can't interpret as art is the study of gaining knowledge. That would be incorrect. So it can't be a, a simple predicate or identity sentence. Uh, so I have to squeeze in one more word here. And why not try to say art is a tool for the study of, of, of knowledge, uh, for the study of cognition. Uh, so that's the interpretation I want to propose for this sentence. Uh, what about you? Yeah, right. You, you got to the soft underbelly of the problem really quickly. Right, so actually, I'd forgotten that I'd stolen that phrase. You know, I stole it so long ago, I forgot that I stole it. And now that you're reminding me of that phrase, I'm remembering that I stole it from Nelson Goodman. You know, who I did my dissertation on and then published a book on it. I don't think like Nelson Goodman does, right? I, I think he was wrong about a lot of things, but I think he was right about that general sentence. Okay, so now the question is in what way do I think he's right? In what way do I think art is a kind of epistemology? So, right, to be, to try to be so, precise. I'm sorry for yeah. interpreting, because that would be a completely different thing when you say art is a kind of right. epistemology. Yeah. So I said art is a tool for epistemology. That's a yeah. big difference. A big difference, right? Yeah. So I think it's a kind of epistemology, right? I think it's a kind of way of gaining knowledge about the world, right? It's kind of the general, you know, now almost murky point of view I have about it. But your phrasing, art is a tool, might be more correct, right? You know, that might be a better way to say it. Uh, and I had never thought of that. Um, so the difference to me would be, I think, tell me if this is right, well, are they so different, though, really, in the end? Because if you say it's a kind of epistemology, you would say it's a species of a bunch of different kinds of epistemologies, right? So a species sort of relationship, right? But if you say it's a tool, right, then that means it's a way that we get to epistemology. Is that correct? Um, no, it, it's uh, a tool is an instrument that 
helps to achieve certain goal, goals. So we would now have to consider what are the goals of epistemology, the study of uh, yeah, okay. methods uh, or ways of, of gaining knowledge. And then we would have to consider how, in which way could uh, uh, art or dealing with art or reflecting of art or producing art uh, be helpful in order to achieve the goals of epistemology. That would then be the starting question, okay. if right. you understand the sentence in my sense. Is it your sense? Yeah. Okay, so you know the picture that I got when you said that was a, I don't know what, I don't have any idea, of course, what the German word is, but the English word is a pry bar. Do you know what that looks like? It's shaped like that and it kind of goes down a little bit and it, it sort of creates leverage. Yeah. Right, so you put it to break open something or to pull something. So art seems to me to be like a pry bar then in that way. So a tool that we kind of pry ourselves open and make ourselves vulnerable to other ways of looking at the world. So in that way, I would say, yeah, it's very much of a tool for cognition. In increasing our sensitivity or uh, offering different interpretations on the information that we have. I think that's, I think there's sort of multiple ways, right? So one of it would be that, right? It, increasing our sensitivity to others' points of view, right? Another, and another would be sort of increasing our ability to interpret things differently, right? I think it's also in a, in a, in a way that I focus on it, this kind of way that we look at the world naturally where there's a lot of low-level information that's not semantic, We have to practice all the time sort of sorting through all of that low-level information, you know, the textures, the shapes, the colors, all of that, and making sense of that, that whole scene and extrapolating from that the relevant features of that scene. And I think that takes a huge amount of practice just editing. You know, that we learn to ignore certain things and to pay attention to other certain things. You know, like peripheral vision, you know, is super important to us in ways that we don't really understand it because it sort of sets the context for what it is that we're focusing on. But we're constantly editing this in sort of probabilistic ways. Oh, yeah, that's probably blah, blah, blah over there. That's probably blah, blah, blah over there. But that process of constantly editing and having saliency maps and figuring out what we're looking at I think that art, by being a kind of sensory onslaught, you know, whether it's visual art or music or even literature, you know, that we're sort of opening up our senses to get much more information than we usually do. I think that process of opening up our senses with art has us practice those fundamental skills of editing and taking stuff in and making sense of things and going oh yeah that's meaningful no no ignore that no no I care about that no how do I care about that oh I hate this oh I love this that whole process that we do in art is I think practice for how we live every day <clears throat> so that's a tool yeah so um, I do not want to insist uh, on this interpretation but if I can drag you along uh, this me. road uh, Then there's one further complication, uh, and uh, let's see what you think about that, because you can also define epistemology as a tool. Yeah. So if epistemology is a tool that assists us either in 
scientific practice or even in our everyday practice to be more critical, become more critical or more open-minded or less prejudiced <coughs> or, uh, or more, uh, more alert to uh, epistemology, epistemic vices. So if you think of epistemology itself as a tool, and if we now put on top of that the interpretation of this phrase, then we have a tool for a tool. Yeah, it's true. And so what could that mean? Again, a here's a proposal. Okay. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, every tool you can use in different ways. You can put it to good use, or you can put it to bad use. You can misuse it, or you can use it clumsily, uh, or you can uh, use it competently. So could it be that art then turns out to be a tool that helps us to use epistemology in a decent I don't want to say in a correct way to use it, our, to use epistemology, or to, our, to use our philosophical insights into epistemic matters uh, in the right way. I like that. Uh, prevent us from misusing epistemology, uh, from not properly using the tools uh, that epistemology provides to us. I like that. I like that. I'm so happy to be dragged. All right, so can I can I expound on that? I think that's a hundred percent right because I think that what art does uh, as a way of socializing us to other people, right, is a way of making us sensitive, not just to the sensory feelings that we ourselves have, but to the how do I say this to the sensory symbols that we get from other people that then in turn sensitize us to them. So I think that art is very much of a social thing. I think art is, a, is an important way that we socialize ourselves, that we understand other people, that we learn to work in consort with other people. I think this is why for every culture, for every nationality, their culture is so important. Their dance is so important to them. Their literature is so important. Their music is so important. Because it says something about how they socially organize themselves. So I think that culture, art thought of broadly, right? That, that culture is a way for us to build these knowledge structures that we use with other people. But that process of doing it with other people is almost in some ways by definition virtuous because what we're doing is we're building structures with people with whom we feel friendly and with whom we are cooperating and with whom we're trying to empathize. And so in some ways, that's a super interesting interpretation of it that you've just given because it almost has built into it goodness in a certain way, right? I know there's plenty of bad art out there that, that you know, elicits all kinds of bad responses in people. But on the whole, it seems like it's probably much more productive of positive well-being between people, flourishing, to use the Aristotelian term, you know, proper flourishing, than it would be otherwise, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it would be... I, I'm very much interested myself in the social aspects of uh, in epistemology and as you are in... Uh, in art, um, but we'll get back to that perhaps in the, later in the conversation. But first, let me try out uh, uh, another path before we get to a, to a 
independently of the social aspect. So uh, I was thinking, of course, why uh, you picked those four ways of accessing reality uh, and connected them uh, with, the, with the four philosophers, so conflict, transcendence, analysis, uh, and uh, symbolization. And I mean, it can be accidental, and then there's no explanation for that. But uh, yesterday when I was thinking about that, uh, and uh, since you mentioned that it now seems to you that perhaps the, the way that Susan Langer uh, uh, develops her aesthetics uh, is closest to your, to your own thinking, and her way of uh, explaining the basic function of art is as, as an expression of feelings, it suddenly started thinking about <clears throat> uh, what are our basic emotions. So there is a debate in psychology and in philosophy about how to categorize our emotions. And there is a, this old uh, categorization by Ekman, who claims there are six basic emotions. But then I came across a, uh, a classification that has four basic emotions. Uh, and what were they? Uh, so I want to try this out to you, whether you see any correspondence uh, between your four forays uh, and those four basic terms. So the, this four-type categorization comes from a uh, psychologist, James Russell, I think in the 70s or 80s. Uh, and uh, he arrives at this classification by uh, cross-cutting uh, uh, Dichotomy. So he looks at uh, 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 valence and uh, level of arousal, and you either get high arousal and low valence. Uh, that is uh, either mood or emotion of being angry, or you get uh, high valence and high uh, arousal. That's happiness, a state of happiness, or you have uh, the low uh, arousal states either with high or low valence are then uh, depression and a sort of calmness or uh, uh, feeling relaxed. So you have happy, uh, angry, depressed, and relaxed and calm. That would be the first four basic emotional states or basic states of mood. Uh, yeah. Is that now accidentally, or does that yeah, see, I correspond really think, with your four ways? I would think relax will be right, because I think relax is just an absence of some of the others, right? You know, like we're agitated when we're angry, we're somewhat agitated. But when, when you think about, uh, uh, so the German term uh, is Seelenruhe, what's the Greek term? This is ancient skepticism, the aim of uh, the Pyrrhonic skeptic is... Uh, Ataraxia. Uh, Ataraxia. Right. Yeah. So, uh, take yeah. this term instead yeah. of feeling relaxed. That's not yeah. just uh, yeah. okay. emptiness, yeah. or it's yeah. a positive state of yeah. being being addressed. Yeah. The soul is addressed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's also ataraxia. It's also lack of anxiety. Right. So it is defined like that. So it is a yeah, you're getting old. away from anxiety. So it is in some ways a lack. Right, so let, let me think yeah. about that. I'm not so sure if those. Remember, Aristotle had that in the Nicomachean Ethics, that incredibly long list of all the emotions. You know, How many you did get? I, I don't even remember. It was like really long. I, I think he's probably closer to being right. But how I think I thought of it 
in some ways, I thought of it as like, what parts of our brain uh, are most active that control our emotions? And, you know, the amygdala is so much the fear center. So fear is like a huge driving force for us, right? But then so are all of the, the dopamine and all of the ones that make us super happy and in love, right? So I kind of went, all right, so conflict, fear is a big one, right? And then transcendence, which is sort of love, is the other one. But then, you know, all this part of our brain, which analyzes everything, which is super important to us. So that was sort of the analysis. And then the Suzanne Langer one was, but so much happens be below consciousness. Like, I, I just thought that was the most profound, like all of this, so much comes in below our level of consciousness. So I, I, I don't know kind of how that fits with the other three. The other three seem like, you know, important neurons in our brain that are doing fear or love or analysis, you know, but we think that we are conscious of everything that we're doing and that we're on top of it. And I think that is so untrue, right? And, and I think that art works because so much of that addresses us below the level of consciousness and we connect to that. And that motivates us and moves us. So sort of go back to your, like, what are the basic ways that art connects? Why did I do that? I think art is, like, so basic. And so I think art, it's, it's somehow addressing those basic parts of our brain that are the, the main components of our brain. And to me, it seems like fear, which is then, of course, anger which is then, of course, violence, you know, and love. And, my God, I have to figure this out. You know, like, humans are very much like that. So I guess I thought that, the, and I think art traffics in those things, primarily, and I think they do it all sort of underneath the surface. Yeah. So the, the negative emotional states, fear, anger, anxiety that you mentioned, so in, in your four approaches, they would all somehow become... Uh, connected to the concept of conflict and according to Thomas Hobbes then to the state of nature yeah uh, but uh, uh, just to see whether we are on the same page here I am understanding Hobbes as a philosophical optimist so he was thinking well uh, we can do much we better can fix it. we can fix it we can do much better than that yeah. uh, so we just need good institutions we need a, a good political system Whatever that looks like, uh, uh, he believed in this, uh, that we can fix it. Uh, uh, we, yeah. have, we have the tools for that. So we have a, a tool issue you, now again. It's sort of true, right? But haven't we all lost confidence in that? Isn't that yeah. the problem? Yeah. yeah. We don't believe anymore that we can fix it this way or that way. Yeah. Uh, no, humans are really shitty. Kind of like at base, we really are a bad yeah, species. Yeah, that's what I wanted to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, like, think about, I don't know, think about all the art that evokes that. I mean, it's not just Wagner, right? But every kind of artwork that has a really violent red stroke, you know, or, or all of the things that we, you know, we reference that part of us all the time, constantly. Hip-hop is big, referencer of that kind of violent, aggressive, conflict-ridden, dangerous. I mean, like, danger and excitement are like twin siblings to us, you know? Like, 
but what's the message? The message is, look, that's how we are, and it not it'll it won't go away. We'll have to live with that. That's I how we are. I kind of feel that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind yeah. of feel that way. Welcome to reality. Yeah. Don't dream of uh, yeah. of the sovereign that brings us peace and glory. Uh, you know, I'm I'm on the fence about that. I mean. You know, I think Hobbes' totalitarianism, of course, was completely wrong, but he is right that this contract into these deals with one another. And we say, okay, you know, I'd really like the opportunity to kill you whenever I get annoyed at you, but since that seems to sort of guarantee some reciprocity, I'm willing to give up that desire to kill you all the time, and we'll make this deal, and we'll try to make murder illegal. But it's just a contract, and it gets us as far as it gets, and will then start quarreling about the contract, bring in the lawyers and then we have another conflict uh, because you, uh, you interpret the contract differently from mine or yeah. you, or I want to, I, I've discovered a loophole in our contract and then can uh, still drag you over the table and things like that. It's really true. Yeah. It's re- I, think that, I think that's true, you know? I mean, I'd like to have some wonderful little phrase here about, but art can get us out of that. But I'm not so sure if art can get us out of that, but I do think that what art can do is to make us more cognizant of that, you know, so that maybe the other rational parts of our brain kind of override the cruelty that comes out of our fear, and maybe we kind of go, all right, let me take a deep breath. Let me go do the ataraxia thing and meditate every morning, right? And let me try to calm myself down so I don't do that. And maybe there's some kind of, I don't know, is the English word expiating the right word? Some... Some that, you know, through art, I mean, this is what people think about horror movies, right, and violent video games, is that, that was Aristotle again, right, the catharsis, the teapot theory, you know, that somehow, and I don't know if that's true, like, I don't know if that actually works like a teapot, and then gets rid of all of that aggression, all of those art forms, or if in fact it sort of deeper instills those habits in our brain, I'm, I don't know. I know this is an empirical question and the data is completely contradictory about that. I don't know. But I think that our only hope for revolving away from our self-destruction, if that's the right way to say it, is to be somewhat more cognizant of what lies under the surface in us. And I think that when we look at art... I had a person come into the tent once. I just remember this. I don't remember her name. I'm so bad at this. But she'd just come out of the Center for Fiction, and she was talking about how she loved to read fiction because it allowed her to empathize and to identify with all of these horrible people <laughs> that she wouldn't normally do. And she said she, she gets to read like about murderers and things like that and kind of go, yeah. right. And then she felt like that... It enriches her life. Yeah, right? And so that she didn't see herself in this like dishonest way of being this really good person, right? That she had a, 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 a she was aware of, I think she said, all the lurking dark corners in her mind. And, and. I'm allowed to have these daydreams. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and that she, she thought art was like really important to do that for people. Free her up for. For multiple perspectives and possibilities, yeah. Yeah, but see, but but I'm not 
this is, again, this is an empirical way. I don't know at what point it frees you and makes you go away from those awful tendencies or at what point it encourages you to become Jack the Ripper. Like, I don't really know, you know, I don't know how that works, you know? So there's one more, perhaps also a coincidence, probably a coincidence that I want to uh, uh, mention here. Uh, and then I'll have, uh, uh, hand over the hat to you. So, because you uh, said yesterday you took a brief look at uh, uh, my recent paper on descriptive psychology. Yeah. Uh, so I went back and took another look at it myself. And lo and behold, what did I find there? Four ways of doing descriptive psychology. Okay. So, we have, so Charles Sanders first was, was obsessed with the three. We are now obsessed here with the, with the fourfold classification. So, uh, so talk to me about the four ways. Well, I said the, the first German philosopher that had the idea was, the, was this Hermann Lotze. So he divided uh, descriptive psychology, uh, uh, then uh, what we now call empirical psychology. Uh, he gave it different names, it doesn't matter. And then uh, what he called speculative philosophy. And uh, in our own terminology, we could now say, well, uh, Speculative psychology is a, is a discipline of philosophy, and at this time that was important for the, for people like Locke, so that they keep the rest of psychology within philosophy. Uh, so remind me of his dates, his birth dates, and so his year. Uh, Locke's first half, first half of nineteenth century, okay. and uh, the, the split up between philosophy and psychology was imminent. And philosophers didn't just let psychology go as a whole. We want to keep something in it. And we, we have a rest of that uh, in the form of philosophy of mind. So we are talking about psychological issues of psychology and philosophy of mind. Uh, but then there is still in lots of this division. We can either lean on the metaphysical side and develop the metaphysical uh, monism or dualism or panpsychism or whatever. And philosophers do that, and then he all had also this other discipline uh, that he called descriptive psychology. And so the question is, how do you do uh, descriptive psychology uh, as something different from what we call now uh, discussing the mind-body uh, problem? So uh, Lotzer was the first one, uh, then uh, came as the next one Brentano, And bring, so, uh, Lotze was discussing this in the, in the metaphysical framework about, uh, and he talked about the soul as the subject matter of psychology. And then uh, a very different uh, route was taken by, by Prentano, uh, who said, I don't need the concept of a the metaphysical concept of a soul. I, do a, I see psychology as a study of mental phenomena. But he also divided psychology into these two parts. The, genetic psychology, as he called it. So that's experimental psychology and then uh, this uh, descriptive psychology. And he interpreted this in epistemological terms. So he thought that uh, with the help of descriptive psychology, we will get the certain first principles or first laws that scientists can then use in resolving the problems of uh, the causation of mental phenomena. So there we are at the tool metaphor again. So the descriptive psychology turns into a tool uh, for experimental philosophy. And 
both of these approaches have been pretty much forgotten. Only specialists know about that. Uh, what's stuck in the mind of people is the third way. And the third way is uh, what uh, the neo-Kantian Wilhelm Dilthey proposed, namely that descriptive psychology becomes the foundation for the humanities. So you have the natural sciences, and they are probably based on math or physics or whatever. Uh, and then we have <coughs> uh, the discipline dealing with the human form of life, <coughs> the humanities. And the study of the arts is clearly part of that. And now the study of the arts would be have as a tool or as a helping discipline, uh, descriptive psychology. And this, this is what separates it from the natural sciences, because the natural sciences are not founded on, on descriptive psychology. And this structure, I think, is very much in the head of many people. And, well, I'm stopping repeating myself now, or retelling the, the story of the paper. So my proposal is then that there's a fourth way of doing it um, in, in this paper, so that we do not stop at Dilte. So it's clear that the, there is a certain historical development here, starting out from Lotze, uh, uh, moving on to Brentano, moving on to Dilte, and then the whole debate seemed to have stopped somehow at the end of early uh, 20th century with, with, with Dilthein. So my question for you would be then, uh, is your way of uh, understanding the phrase art is a form of cognition, or a kind of cognition, I'm back to, the, to this interpretation, isn't that still kind of in the shadow of Dilthein? Thinking, uh, art is a different uh, approach. Is, is, uh, is a way of cognition. Uh, yeah, that's clearly autonomous with respect to the natural sciences. So the idea of there's an autonomous way where scientific knowledge is not a, uh, part of it. And art helps us to develop this uh, humanistic disciplines. That would be till time. Are you on, on this bandwagon? Yeah, gosh, this is a really, really hard one. But I'm handing over the hands. Oh, God, no. No, I hope there's some brain that goes <laughs> in here, too, because I'm having trouble right now. Uh, Gosh, I'd never thought about those kinds of categorizations. And but you can also hide behind Goodman if you want to now, because I don't know much about Goodman. You know Goodman so well. So I guess Goodman yeah. never mentions Diltai or no, wasn't aware no. of, of Diltai's work. Uh, but when you think about how Goodman uh, conceived of the arts, which uh, is why it was. It was referential and it was a semantic analysis, so it's, it's was it, really... Was it anti-naturalistic? Is there, is there uh, some anti-naturalism? Really. But let me go back to this, this vision because I, I, I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm, I'm going to say this anyway. I think that art is this funny, like, 
third link between the humanities and the sciences, because I think art helps us understand the world in the way that sciences demand that we understand the world, which is by parsing the world and actually seeing what patterns are out there and, and actually recognizing the data that's there. I think art is a kind of sensory input to us all the time. Um, refines our ability to parse the world. But it also, at the same time, is humanities-based because it also refines our ability to sort of understand human connections. So I'm not so sure how it would work in those schemas. So, did I understand that? That there is a kind of equidistance then? between art and humanities and art and the sciences? It feels that way to me now. Yeah. So it feels like then, then art is almost the bridge between those things or the thing that allows you to get to both. Maybe that's why it's so... Like, this is what I was saying. It, I think it's super interesting that we're the only species that does this. So it's obviously really important to us. And everybody has always done it. Every single culture all through history. You know? Well, uh, here's a confession. Uh, so I'm considered to be an, an analytic philosopher, and I was for a long time fine with this label, but in the meantime, I really came to hate it because it has this effect. Uh, well, now I put it very uh, uh, crudely. Uh, you are an, an, an analytic philosopher. You do your... Uh, your symbolic logic and your philosophy of science, art belongs to us. And we are the people, the continental philosophers, yeah. we, uh, we are in the tradition of Diltai, uh, we are in the uh, uh, <coughs> tradition of understanding the, the, the humanities, uh, and art belongs to us. Uh, you get your philosophy of science and whatever you yeah, want yeah, to have. The division there. Yeah. I don't want to play this game. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I don't give them the yeah. arts. Uh, I have to admit, of course, that more continental philosophers, uh, continental f philosophers, have written more, uh, more insight, one, more yeah. insightful yeah. things about the arts, yeah. and the, the analytic yeah. philosophy is lagging behind here. Yeah. But I'm still, yeah. I, I'm simply refusing uh, about this division and saying, well, art is a, is an issue that. Uh, is closer to the humanities or is more appropriate to be dealt with in, uh, in the context of continental philosophy uh, and analy analytic philosophy isn't just up to this topic. Uh, yeah. I refuse that. Yeah, I do too. Even though, like you said, you know, there is some proof. There is some proof for that because, you know, analytic philosophy has had a hard time grappling, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, not entirely, but yeah. As an aside, I think the sort of historical disjunct that's always happened between continental and analytic is starting to come to an end, but maybe I'm too optimistic. But I think there's lots of people who feel exactly the way you and I feel. You know? Well, those who see that as a struggle about power and influence and positions at universities, uh, they will keep it going. Yeah, that's true. They, they will not give up on this. Yeah, I think that's, I think they that's want true. to win it. Yeah, that, that's so there has true. to be a battle, otherwise there's nothing to win. Yeah, that's really that is true. So that they they, true. they keep it going. Yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah, maybe that's why. I mean, that's interesting because I don't, you know, you, you never know your own motives, right? But 
at least I don't know my motives a lot of times, but I think part of my insistence on looking at the function of art and how art works as a kind of epistemology or as a tool for epistemology is understanding it then in that sort of quasi-scientific way, like, look, this is the way eyes work and this is the way we absorb things. But to me, cognition and knowledge cannot be separated out from these basic scientific facts of the world about this is how we maneuver in the world and this is how we get information in. So I don't think that you can take art and separate it out from basic biology. You've got to have some kind of biological explanation about how art becomes a cognitive process for us because clearly that's what's going on. And so it can't just be interpreted in a super historical, cultural, or sociological way. There's got to be something about, look, this is, this is data that we pull in from the outside of the world, just like we pull in other data from the outside of the world. And that's a very physiological, very science-based thing. And somehow, cognitively, it's forming our, our ideas about the world. And that's the that's the process that sort of needs to be focused on. And I think that process pulls in both analytic and continental traditions. Look, one of, to me, one of the problems with analytic philosophy is that it sort of sets us up as a super ahistorical thing, right? It's super ahistorical. You know, these facts just exist in the world and they're just permanent. And it's almost, it's almost like this rebirth of these platonic ideals. You know, here they are forever, forever. We get to say these logical truths and they just live on, they live on. And it's just, pathetically grandiose and not true thing, right? Things, and I think the analytic philosophers kind of grappled with that in the middle of the 20th century when you get people like Quine and Goodman and people like that sort of going, ah, yeah, science is really provisional. So now all of a sudden you've got science put into history, right? And so the so-called truths of science become historically revisable all the time. So the ahistorical nature of analytic philosophy, I think was destroyed a long time ago. I just think people haven't quite grasped that, you know? But at the same time, I think that this kind of, the phrase egging on came into my head. Maybe that's the right phrase, I don't know, but sort of the egging on that continental philosophy does of sort of going to these, you know, utopian social political ideals that get set up in continental philosophy also has been discarded and not true. And again, I don't really think that people have recognized the fact that that's been discarded too, you know? So I think that there's a couple of super romantic stories that both sides are telling themselves, you know, and that nobody's really fessed up to the fact that, oh man, that was thrown out a long time ago. Let's just be real about it and figure out where we are. And, and I think that where we are has to be some kind of marriage of, of scientific understandings with humanistic concerns, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. So right. being a, a, a historically, that's one accusation, and that's certainly justified one. Uh, 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 something that narrows the uh, the perspective. But the other one, and so I wonder how you would defend uh, yourself, uh, your view of the arts, when somebody comes and say it's not critical enough. So you are not critical enough, but you're not understanding that the function of art and the function of philosophy uh, uh, is to be critical, including 
of course, uh, critically of the practice of science and the, uh, and the worldview, the scientific worldview. Uh, do you think you can make a helpful cont contributions with your tools again now to building up the scientific worldview that uh, uh, the Vienna Circuit pe uh, people were talking about? You're not critical enough. How do you defend, defend yourself against that? And we are the critical people, and of course, the, the post by people. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's going to sound cynical. Visual art, anyway, right? Not music, not other things. But visual art, because it's such an expensive thing, right? And it is super expensive. It takes a long time to make, and it costs a lot of money because it takes a long time to make, you know? Um, is something that sort of stays within largely the upper class, right? They're baubles for rich people. I mean, that's just the way it goes. That's just the way it is. And in some ways, it, I've always been baffled by the idea that that ought to perform super critical functions because those people that are buying it are the last people in the world who are going to listen to any real critical system that's going to attack their world. So it's kind of throwing oatmeal against the wall. Like, well, maybe it's critical, but really, does anybody listening, does anybody care, right? So I'm not really so sure if that's the world for great critical undermining of the world. I think that that's, that's sort of adolescent bragging. It doesn't really go anywhere. I think it's a bit dishonest, you know? The economic structures of the art world, I don't think they support that view. Um, But so is art supposed to do that? I'm not so sure art's supposed to radically undermine political structures. I think sometimes individual artists do, and sometimes that catches on, and it's a different point of view, and it moves society in a different direction. But I don't think, I don't think that that's the job description that is necessarily part of art. I think art's much more complicated than pushing forward um, a radical political agenda. I don't think that's the story. Um, but then the question is, well, what is the story? Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the notion of critical here is not just political. You can be critical also, well, if you take political anywhere, <clears throat> in a very wide sense, then it's almost uh, uh, has some political dimension to it, this uh, critical. But uh, as I understand it, the idea is that uh, um, we don't share this, this this optimism of philosophers like Hobbes or also the, the optimism of uh, Charles Sanders Peirce that by making good use of the tools that we have, uh, we can uh, make real progress and live in a better world in the future. Uh, we are disillusioned now and art uh, is just a way of expressing our disillusionment. So then we, on the emotional side, we are now moving from the side of happiness to the kind of the depressed. Uh, we are, the world is disenchanted. Uh, we are disillusioned about uh, modernity. modernity. 
and neither artists nor uh, philosophers are leading the way out of it. Will will will, will be left the way out. Of it, oh, exactly. I see. I see. Yeah. Uh, so if it, yeah. when you share this kind of sentiment, uh, then you are critical in this I see. very general I basic see. sense, which is not necessarily political. I see. Do you feel that sentiment oh, sometimes? Okay, so maybe maybe I wasn't understanding you before. Let me try to give it back to you. You tell me if I am understanding you. And then I think we're going to be out, out shouted getting, here. We are but, getting the music now, yeah, okay. But, but um, all right, so Joseph Boyce, right, had this whole kind of mythology that he built around him that he was a shaman, right? So that's that kind of shamanistic art to lead people in a spiritual kind of way out of things. Is that kind of what you're thinking about in terms of criticality? No, it's just... Uh, I'm wrong again. Uh, the attitude is, I am... I do not want to be part of the world as it is. Yeah. I'm swimming against the stream. An artist ought to be a leader to get are helping us or showing us how to do that. Yeah. If you are if you are joining this boat, uh, this boat is not swimming in the direction of the river, it's yeah. swimming against it. And so you're saying what was that? Maybe I've lost the thread here. You're saying that there's some criticism from analytic philosophers, right? Um, from, sorry, from continental philosophers, that analytic philosophers aren't doing that. Right. Is that correct? Okay. Um, that art? Yeah. That's the essential function of art. That is the essential so that, function of therefore art. Therefore, they, they, they will not get together. Ah, uh, I see. You know, in some ways that's, that might be true. In some ways that might be true in a fair criticism, right? Because... In some ways, like analytic, because it has no roots in existentialism, you know, or in the angst of life in general, right, can't perhaps grasp a hold of the way that art can be a lifeboat and the function of art as a lifeboat. I mean, I tend to think that, and again, I'm on the fence about this is so much else, right? I think that, all right. Andy Warhol said, the job of artists is to mirror society. No lifeboat analysis from him at all, right? So art just stands there and gives you back what you've already got, right? I thought that was always just terribly cynical, right? On the other hand, I think it's way overly romantic to think that art's going to save us all. So I think I'm some kind of in-between in the middle of that, you know? I think that art both reflects its context and the people in it, right? But at the same time, individual artists can sort of pop up and people can get behind and go, oh yeah, wait a minute, let's think about that, we haven't thought about that, that might be a better idea for us. And so I think that art kind of does both. Um, and I, but I do think that you're probably right that analytic philosophy, because it doesn't have that sort of historical sociological analysis working within it, is, is hard pressed to figure that out. And this is the perfect you, ending. You are wearing the hat, so you have to close I go, this. yeah. And now, right, with this Wagnerian kind of ending, I'll say thank you. Thank you.